This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. My name is Steve. I'm one of the um, leaders at the church, and we're doing a series um, at the moment on uh, on the story of Exodus, and it's called uh, "He Draws Us Out to Draw Us In." And we're we're looking at instances in the stories uh, of the Israelites, which are, are actually our story, the people of God, where God draws us out of our comfort zone, in their case of of Egypt, uh, to draw us in close to Him as well. Um, and what we're looking at today is uh, Exodus 15 to 17, which is kind of the bit about manna. Um, the bread for heaven, but what we're actually talking about today is grumbling. Uh, So today's seminar is called Grumbling, a Very Human Manism, uh, a.k.a. Food for Thought. What a waste of 30 seconds my preach that was. Uh, So just to catch up on the story so far, the Israelites, God's people, were in Egypt. They were there because they had... They'd been led there under great auspices, under, under Joseph, who was one of the patriarchs. He was one of the post, most powerful men in Egypt, and the Israelites came there. But we're told that a few generations later, the pharaohs, the leaders uh, of the Egyptians, forgot why the Israelites were there and began to hate them, so subjected them to slavery. Um, and then God calls Moses, who was raised as a prince of Egypt, hence the name of the film, Prince of Egypt. And Moses is sent to Pharaoh and told, God says, let my people go, and Pharaoh says, no. And uh, through Moses, God sends ten plagues against the Egyptians, Um, and uh, Pharaoh keeps saying, yeah, okay, let them go, and then relenting, yeah, okay, let them go, and the last plague is is the death of the firstborn, which we chatted about a few weeks ago, uh, which uh, is celebrated in the festival of the Passover. And then eventually Pharaoh does let them go, and the Israelites leave Egypt, uh, and then Pharaoh changes his mind again. He's like, no, actually, I want you back, and he chases them with his army, and the Israelites, 600,000 men and many more women and children and livestock, find themselves with the Red Sea on one side and the Egyptian army chasing down them on the other side, which is what Howard preached about last week, and they have got no idea where to go. They think they're going to die, and uh, that's when we get one of the most memorable miracles of the Old Testament, where God parts the Red Sea, and the Egyptians go, uh, the Israelites go through, the Egyptians try and follow them and get crushed by the sea, and that's literally uh, where we're picking up uh, on today, the other side of the Red Sea. But what's interesting is what, whilst the Israelites have just gone through this uh, enormously incredible story and this really like formative moment in, in, in their life as a nation, is the next three chapters, as I said, uh, are basically a story about grumbling from the Egyptians, uh, from the Israelites, sorry, and a response one from God, which is this merciful response to provision. Grumble two, then another response, which also comes with a command about the Sabbath, and then grumble three, uh, and response three as well. So that's roughly the structure of it. So if you try and follow that, what I'm going to do is read a really abridged version of it to, to give you the actual verses behind it. So it actually starts with the, uh, the Israelites, the other side uh, of the Red Sea, celebrating by singing a song uh, to commemorate what God's done, which in fact commemorates him so well. It's such a good commemoration that we've still got it now in the Bible. But picking up from verse 22, we hear that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea and they went into the desert of Shur, For three days they travelled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter, which is why the people called that place Marah, which means bitter. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. 
He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. So there we get grumble one and uh, miraculous, merciful provision one. And then uh, the Israelites go on to a place called Elam, where there are 12 springs, all good there. And then we pick it up again in 16. This is grumble number two. Uh, the whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled again against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat round pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. So this is provision too. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? So grumble to and provision to. And provision to comes with an additional caveat, which is to obey God in the topic of Sabbath. So picking up just a little bit later in chapter 16, the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some gathered little. And when they measured it by the omer, which was uh, about 1.4 kilograms, the one who gathered much, this is the bread from heaven, did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. He said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning as Moses commanded and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is the Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day of the Sabbath there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. The Lord said to Moses, how long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. This is why on the sixth day... He gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out, so the people rested on the seventh day. So grumble to, provision to, bit about the Sabbath, then a bit I'm going to miss out, which is about how they commemorate it going forward. And then grumble three in response three, Exodus 17. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why? Do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah, which means testing and quarreling, because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So there you go, an abridged version uh, of those two chapters. 
three chapters. Uh, it's interesting. Sometimes we get a story repeated uh, multiple times in the Bible. Sometimes the same thing can be repeated three times, and, and that's partly because uh, the Bible was passed down as an oral tradition, so we did it to remember it, um, and partly also because there are points in the Bible where God wants to really get something, so we hear the story over and over again. But what we get here is three separate stories of the Israelites grumbling. And um, what, what's really interesting is that the first one, the first time they grumble here, is literally three days after they have just been through one of the most miraculous miracles that has ever happened on this earth. That's why I caught us up on the story. It wasn't, I, Tegan's got a little baby Bible, which I've been reading to her, and it says quite a while later, the Israelites started to grumble because they had no water. Three days after this unbelievable miracle. And um, you know, on, on first reading, you kind of read this with that in mind when you put that whole story together and think, how can the Israelites be so stupid? Can you imagine the relief the Israelites must have felt after being taken through a sea that was parted for them and then their enemies crushed underneath it? In fact, we don't have to imagine because the verses before that, 18 of them are a song thanking the Lord. Verse 1 in Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. But instead they complain for having no water. And then after that, they complain for having no food. Well, yeah, you took us through a sea and you gave us water, but now we've got no food. And then they complain about water again. Well, yeah, you took us through a sea, you gave us water, you gave us food, but now we've got no water again. The Israelites come across as fairly unlikable, frankly. No water, Moses. Where's the beef, Moses? I've got blisters on my feet, Moses. Who died and made you boss? Are we there yet, Moses? It's interesting that when they ask for food, they aren't actually about to starve. Their livestock are still with them. Don't they seem whiny? And what's particularly incredible, I find, about when they do complain about food is that they aren't even complaining about death. They're complaining about hunger. Get this, 16 verse 3. If only we had died, so they're talking about their alternative, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. They're recognising that their old situation, they would have died in any way. They say, if only we would die by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There, we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But here, you've brought us out into the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They're not saying it's about the death. They're just complaining about being hungry. Grumbling sometimes seems like a small topic. You know, we read the Israelites grumble, and it makes them seem annoying. We all know people who grumble all the time. We all know that person at work who's really negative, and we find them annoying. But actually, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's much bigger than this. The reason that it seems so crazy that the Israelites are complaining just three days after their salvation from their sea parting for them is because it feels like it's a spiritual amnesia. It's a forgetfulness. It's actually pretty faithless of of them to continue complaining when you consider their previous salvations. Grumbling says something much deeper than just about our circumstances. And that's what Moses gets, and that's what Moses said to them. In Exodus 16, when they've just complained to him about food, after complaining to him about water, after complaining to him about Pharaoh, he says, who are we? Who am I, Moses? Who's my brother, Aaron? We are just men that you should grumble against us. The Lord has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. The Israelites, when we complain, when the Israelites complain, they think they're complaining against something practical, practical, like a, a detail, but clearly it's God, not Moses, who has led them out. It is God who's put a calling on the whole Israelite nation that they are going to be a great nation and that Jesus is going to be born out of them. It's not Moses. It's God who's called them out of Egypt. Moses was there with a the staff, but it was God's power through him. It's not Moses who separated the sea, who provides for them. It's God. So for them to complain to Moses as if he's kind of like this tour guide with the itinerary and his role was to make sure they've got food, they're complaining to God. They've got to believe that he's in control. And Moses gets that. Moses knows he's not the solution. This is a big issue for me, and I'm sure for some other people in the church. 
you sometimes you want to be the solution when you get a problem, but Moses recognizes that. Moses says, you are not complaining to me. This is well out of my reach. You are complaining to God. This is not something that I can do in my own strength. Stephen Lee, who's a preacher at uh, Bethlehem Church in, uh, uh, in America, which is John Piper's church, uh, he says that grumbling, whining, and thanklessness are not ultimately the heart's responses to circumstances, but to God. The Israelites' complaining wasn't rooted in their scenery, but their hearts. You see, when we complain, when the Israelites complained, they might have thought that they were complaining about a circumstance or a detail, but actually those details were superseded by the greater picture of what was going on, which was Jesus was pulling a flipping nation out of a nation. Grumbling is forgetfulness, faithlessness, ungratefulness. And another characteristic of grumbling, which we keep coming back to week in, week out, is that it suggests unrealistic alternatives. This is how you know if you're grumbling or if someone's grumbling or how we can see that the Israelites are grumbling. They've done this already in chapter 14, and, and again, how I preached on this last week, when the Egyptians are crushing them against the sea. They say to Moses, didn't we say to you in Egypt, Moses, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They are trying to return to slavery, and this is what we do when we complain. Egypt was horrific for the Israelites. Egypt was absolutely horrific. In Exodus verse 1, we're told the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. When Moses came and says, God says, let my people go, Pharaoh said to take away the straw. They were making bricks for the Egyptians out of straw. He said, you now have to find your own straw, but you still have to make the same number of bricks. When he came again, when, they, when Pharaoh became more fearful of the, of the Israelites, he killed their firstborn children. It was horrific. It was not better than for, for them there. And there, isn't, this, isn't this what people do when you complain? Don't you find yourself doing this? Like, oh, I wish I'd never got this job. Like, I wish I'd never got a house. It's just so stressful. I wish I'd never met you. I wish I'd never been born. That's what we do. We posit these unrealistic alternatives because it's about our heart and not about our circumstances. Other thing, we think of grumbling as something that other people do. I think of grumbling as something that other people do. What I do is make justified complaints or offer constructive criticism, but I do not grumble. In fact, I know people who do grumble and they annoy me. That's me grumbling about people. I grumble constantly. I grumble, I've done it today already. I grumble constantly about how tired I am at the moment. We've got a newborn and a two-year-old who's going through sleep regression. If someone comes to me and tells me they're tired, I grumble about them because I am the lord of tiredness at the moment and you don't get the right to grumble to me. Western societies are only three days of empty shelves away from rioting. How true is it that we are a grumbling nation? In fact, what are the two conversational topics British people are known for talking about in small talk? The weather, complaining about the weather and complaining about public transport. We worship on a Sunday and three days later we complain. Three hours later we complain. I'm spiritual one minute and I'm carnal the next I will be in a moment with the Lord praying, doing my Bible study, thinking I got this, and then Joe comes and asks me about a detail about something that I don't want to think about, and I become grumbly. So we read the Israelites' disobedience to God's clear guidelines and think, man, are they hard-hearted. But actually, we are the same. We are no better. We rationalize away the provision that God has previously done for us and say, no, this situation is worthy of my complaint. The Allens at the moment are praying for a house for their church plant, and I'm thinking, God, why won't you just give them a house? This is really hard, but not thanking him that he's given them a job already, that he's given them the calling, that he's given them each other. We rationalize away our answers to prayer and we complain. Stephen Lee again says, as a Christian, this is what we're saying. We say, I know, God, that you've forgiven all my sins at the cross. You've rescued me from eternal conscious torment and you've given me everlasting joy in your presence. But all I have for dinner is leftovers and I am pretty knocked about that. 
Bryce Young, who's another preacher uh, speaking at at, um, John Piper's church, says, Israel's distrust three days, just three days after the parting of the Red Sea, this incredible miracle, that ought to strike us with certain horror. But the fact is, if our own distrust doesn't also appear so shockingly absurd, it's only because we've stretched over it a tawdry flesh of reasons and explanations to prove we have real grounds to believe that God has hung us out to dry. No, that's different. It's different for the Israelites. For me, my complaints are justified. I've got a reason to not believe God. And in the same way that the complaints of the Israelites weren't about their circumstances but their hearts, the same can be said of us. As I was preparing for this, I, just, I was really struck with the truism that the way that we respond to what we have or don't have says a lot about us. The way that we respond to what we have and what we don't have says a lot about us. That's what the Israelites are doing. They don't have stuff, and they respond in an ungodly way. You might think, no, I've got this covered. I, in fact, I don't complain very much. What about if your house got taken away, your health got taken away, your job got taken away? What we have or what we don't have says a lot about us, and we can't take it with us when we go forth from here. It's pretty much the assessment of the heart possessions, money, a spouse, respect, a position, a promotion. Do you have them? Do you not have them? How do you deal with them? How would you deal if you didn't have them? How would you deal with them if you did have them? Now, it's important to say that grumbling isn't just about trivial stuff. It's not a trivial issue. The Israelites complain about hunger, and I've kind of pointed out how banal that was in some senses, but they were also worried about starvation and dehydration. So in some ways, their story is about trivial complaints, but in other ways, it's deadly serious. There is real pain in the world. There are funerals, there's infidelity, there are lost jobs, there are illnesses, there are poverty. Some of us, no doubt, are going through some of those things or know people close to us who are. If grumbling feels like a trivial topic, that's unhelpful because we grumble about things that are not trivial. In fact, grumbling itself just means to complain about something in a bad-tempered way. It doesn't mean that the thing you are complaining about doesn't suck really hard or doesn't feel unfair or doesn't feel like it's too much for you to bear. But whether we grumble or complain about something that's small, trivial, or not, the results of grumbling are not trivial, which is why this is relevant to all of us. The results are big and they're toxic. See, grumbling is infectious. Chapter after chapter, up to now, we've heard that the Israelites grumble. They grumble, and spoiler alert, we're going to keep getting that through the rest of Exodus. And it happens to us as well. We know that, right? You know that team at work who always grumble. Like, if you join a team that grumbles, you're more likely to grumble. If I go to the tea point, and people are talking, like, what are you talking about? And they're like, well, I wouldn't say that they're grumbling, but they're talking about someone and giving negative attitudes. But I am more inclined to offer my constructive criticism as well, which is also grumbling. Or, you know, when I find an environment where I don't normally grumble, like, say, maybe in a church one and I find someone letting off steam rather than grumbling oh this is great this is cathartic I might let off steam as well but it's grumbling it's infectious we do it more other people do it more around you and also it grows because it hardens your heart I think this is actually Tim Chester and I've said Tim Keller throughout but you know they're both wise men uh, we are scrutin- this is what it is We're- grumbling is scrutinizing God and testing his goodness God has failed to deliver I deserve better our grumbling is judging God and it finds him coming short. And people, the God who led his people through the Red Sea, rained down bread from heaven on them, gave him water from a rock, and sends his son to die for them, does not come short. The Israelites do not trust God, and if we grumble, whether about something big or small, we are in danger of not trusting him either. But what's remarkable about this story is that while we get three tales of grumbling, we also get three tales of God's provision in response. Story one, they don't have water to drink. He throws some wood in it. It makes it sweet. Story two, Moses, we don't have no food to eat. Rains down bread from heaven, and I think I actually missed the bit reading off. He blows in quail, which are a type of bird, so they've got meat to eat in the evening. Story three, no water again. Strikes a rock. Water comes out from it. 
And this is what we must remember if we want to overcome untrusting in our life, unfaithfulness in our lives, complaining and grumbling in our hearts. God provides. God provides. But he provides quite differently to the way that we provide, which I think is why we find ourselves struggling to remember that and why we find ourselves grumbling. So here's just a few ways from the scripture uh, that it is that God provides for us. Number one, he provides for his glory. Chapter 16, verse 2, in response to the, to the bread, Moses lays out the plan of God before them, and he says, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. God is all about his own glory. If I was all about my own glory, that would be narcissistic, but God's glory is the best thing for us. It is what he has made us for. Being in his presence, being in his glory is the best place for him. In him, we find salvation, eternal life, peace, joy, provision. Why is it that God keeps providing for this whinging, untrusting, deceitful nation, you know, Israel, us, whoever, for his glory? He doesn't need them, he does it for his glory. Number two, he provides enough for everyone. Whether we believe this or not, whether we think that we're seeing this in our lives or not, God has provided enough for everyone. Exodus 16, verse 18. Again, this is them gathering the bread from heaven. And when they measured it by the omer, that 1.4 kilograms, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. This is remarkable. The The Israelites were in the desert for 40 years, and he sustained them on bread and on quail alone. Imagine the Public Health England campaign for five fruit and veg a day. They did not need it. God provided, and he provided enough for all of them, whether we believe that or feel like we're seeing that or not. It is true. Number three, he provides enough for everyone's needs, but not necessarily wants. Now, we've done this before. We've talked about money. It's about a year ago, though, so it probably bears in mind saying some of this stuff again. Uh, Needs, not want. When the Bible talks about God's provision, it talks about our needs. And this is one of the biggest issues for us in a comfortable environment as we are. That's the reality. That's where we've been born. It's, It's okay. It's not our fault. But that's one of the biggest challenges for us is getting the difference between needs and wants. Oh, I can't afford a foreign holiday this year but he's still providing for my needs. Needs and wants, do I need or do I want that second car? Do I need or I want that bigger house? Do I need or do I want those other clothes? It's not to say that those things are inherently evil or that I'm saying that we shouldn't have them. We each need to think about in our hearts and talk about it because we've got to be discipled by one another where those things match. But the reality is that God's provision is for our needs and not for our wants. In fact, Chapter 16, verse 16, that's what he says, gather as much as you need. And in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, when writing to a church, uses this exact bit of scripture. He quotes it as a motivation for a church to give to another church. He says to his church, guys, you were so hot for giving at the beginning. You really wanted to give to this other church because they had less to you, but you have decided not to do it. Guys, you need to do it. And the reason you get motivated to do it is because scripture says each gathers as much as you need. We've got more than we need, so we want to give some away. Keller and or Chester, depending on who said this again, The Bible will not grant the premise that because you gathered the money, you have the absolute right over it. It was the gift of God to us. What you have got for yourselves, the provision God has got for you, is a gift from him to you guys. If you are able to gather more, if if you're an Israelite who had two arms and was super efficient at gathering all the manna rather than the one who only had one or who was really slow at doing it, or on today's society, if you are smarter, God bless you. If you have a better job, if you have a better paid job, if you are able to gather more, consider that it would have been just as easy for you to have been born into circumstances in which all your hard work and gathering would result in poverty and starvation. What this scripture showed us is that unshared, unused manner, whether your food or your money or your time or your gifting, it rots and it goes smelly. That's what happens if we don't share it, if we try and keep it overnight. We are made to be conduits and not cul-de-sacs when it comes to the provision of God. That's what the kingdom is. Number one, two, three, four. 
He provides enough for you today, tomorrow he'll provide enough for you tomorrow. Every day they got enough manna for that day, and then they kept overnight. It rotted. Manna shows us that we are required to trust God will provide today, and then he'll provide again tomorrow, and then he'll provide again the day after tomorrow. Now, what's that not to say is you're meant to give away all your money to, or spend all your money today. This isn't saying don't save. This is changing our hearts on trust. This is speaking into uh, situations like, are you asking yourself, you know, if I tithe today, I'm not sure I'll have enough money left for the end of the month. That's what this is speaking into. God has grace for you today. Are you in a situation which is eating up all your time or all your energy? I'm not sure how I can keep this going. God has enough grace for you today tomorrow and the day after we just need to believe that and number five his provision comes with a call for dependence on him and this is the good one if you only go remember one forget the other four Uh, we'll come back to another example of this very shortly but in chapter 15 verse 26 if you listen this is God to the people he's just provided water for them if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians for I am the Lord who heals you God's provision comes with a call for obedience. Now, what's that about? Because if I said to you, you can have a car, but you have to pay for me, pay me for it, that would just be a transaction. If I said to you, I will give you a car, but you're only allowed to drive it where I tell you, when I tell you, and you can only give lifts to the people that I tell you, we'd say that was kind of controlling manipulation. But if I gave you a car and said, but you have to drive it safely, here's how you drive it safely, that would be something different altogether. We have to recognise that God provides for us, but with it there's a call for obedience because he knows the best for us. And what is best for us is dependence on him. His provision comes for a call for trust that he will always depend that he will always provide for us and for that we become dependent on him now the israelites get that they will understand obedience as a concept because they've been slaves but what god's saying to them is you are free now from your old slave masters you are free from egypt but you are not your own masters if you try and be your own masters speaking to us as well you will fall back into slavery and isn't that what the egyptians try and do we want to be our own masters let us go back to egypt like wave the white flag to pharaoh i'm sure they'll let us go back with them that's what we do as well and this is where we find it so difficult to trust in his provision because we want to be our own masters but there's no such thing We'd prefer to be slaves than admit that God should be our master. You might think you're your own master, but you are a slave to something. Like, I'm free. No one's my master. No, you're probably a slave to your own pride. Like, I only do what I tell myself to do. Right, okay, then you're a slave to your own desires. Like, I'm free, I wear what I want. Okay, then you're a slave to fashion. We, are, we will be a slave to something. It's how we've been made. We will be a slave to something. And because of that, we need to know dependence on him. Because when we think that we've got our own independence, we'll fall into slavery. And not only do we struggle because we want our own independence, we struggle because the way that God provides is very contrary to the way that we provide. So when we provide for one another, it's actually the other way around. We try and give people independence. If I was providing for Naomi and uh, I just made you dependent on me, then in the end, that would fall through because I would let her down, I would die, I'm sinful, and in the meantime, I would feel crushed. So human-to-human support, we're trying to give each other independence. It's that whole kind of proverb of, you know, if you give a man a glass of water, then he has a drink. If you give him a well, then something, something about him having a drink for all time. It's that kind of thing. But with God, it's the other way around. God provides to make people dependent on him because that, believe it or not, is the best thing for us. He will never not provide for us We just need to trust him. And we'll touch on this again, but this is what it says in John when Jesus says, I'm the bread from heaven. 
And also, like, I am the true stream as well. We'll come back to those a little bit later. And he says, whoever believes in me will, will never hunger or thirst. He will always provide for us. God knows, in fact, these are my two sub points to point five, that it is so important that we become dependent on him that he forces us into situations where we must choose it or run. And he does that in a couple of ways in this scripture. We've mentioned this before. God uses a call to obedience to get us to trust him so that we may faithfully believe that he will, that we, that he will provide and not grumble. This is his response to when he gives some food. He says, you have to obey me. Here's the Sabbath. Here's how we do it. Now, the last thing I preached on a couple of months ago was Sabbath, so I'm not going to go through it all again. Um, you should go away and listen to that preach or not. Um, but Sabbath's really good. But it's interesting that the Israelites, and again, we, we saw this last week, the Israelites have picked up bad habits from Egypt. They believe that they have to work to please their new God. They believe that they have to work to please their slave masters because that's what they used to have to do. But God is saying, like, the reason that Pharaoh did that, the reason that Pharaoh submitted them to slavery was because he was scared of them. God is not scared of us. We are slaves to God. He's not fearful of us. And the reason that Pharaoh did that is because he needed someone to build bricks, to build his towns. God doesn't need us to do everything. That's the difference between our God. That's the difference between things that we were slaves to, such as Egypt or pride or fashion or, or whatever it is. And one of the ways that he does this and the way that he does this in this scripture is to give them the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a recognition that we cannot earn our salvation. We do not need to work. God doesn't need us to work for it. Rest is far more important when it comes to salvation than work. Again, we had this last week, but think about it when Martin Luther understood that breakthrough. What? Nothing. We do nothing for our salvation. Guys, if you are a Christian, you do nothing for your salvation. If you are not a Christian here today, you do not need to work for your salvation. That's not what this is. It says we just believe in the Lord, and he gives us to him. And he gives us the Sabbath as a sign of us remembering that, both his sign to us, but also for us once a week to remember, like, yeah, this isn't reliant on me. God's provision isn't reliant on me working seven days a week. And that's why the Sabbath is so important, because it is a trusting manifestation of us recognizing that we can do nothing, what, nothing for our salvation, but it is he who provides. And therefore, we're dependent on him and not ourselves. So one, he calls us to obedience to make us dependent on him. Two, he calls us to the wilderness. He takes his people to the wilderness, and there he tests them. Clearly, the Israelites were taken to the desert for a reason. They did not go the quickest route to Palestine, nor did the slowest route, which they took, need to take 40 years. In fact, one man I googled walked around the globe in 11 years, so they could have walked around the globe four times in the time that it took them to get to the Promised Land. So what was the reason? Deuteronomy 8 is very explicit about it. It says, he humbled you when talking about this exact phase of the Israelites' life. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And a little bit later on in 8, Deuteronomy 8, it says, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Wow, the wilderness, the desert place, is a, t- a place of testing. We see this again and again. God is schooling his people in the desert to trust him with daily trust. He did it with Jesus. He did it, uh, it throughout, and, and the reason that he does this is so that prosperity will not ruin the hearts of the Israelites. They're in the desert at the moment, but after the desert, they're going to be in the promised land. John Piper says, God aimed to give them experiences in the wilderness which would make it impossible for a reason pers- reasonable person to say, my power, my might, my hand has gotten me this wealth. The real testing ground for the Israelites, for us, is the promised land of prosperity. The wilderness is the boot camp, The land of milk and honey is where the battle for the heart is finally fought. The wilderness is God's gracious inoculation against the infections of prosperity. 
Don't we find this, people of Cheltenham, when we live so much close to prosperity? It is hard. Who here hasn't said, I found it easier to pray at times in my life when it's difficult? It's harder when we're in prosperity in some ways when it comes to the spiritual. And the wilderness, whether it's literal here, people of Israel coming away, whether it's Jesus being led into it by the Spirit, or whether it's areas in our life that feel very difficult, are the place of training so our hearts aren't ruined when we get prosperity. But it is hard for us to accept that the wilderness is good and an inevitable thing because we are so used to prosperity. Oswald Chambers says, the typical view of a Christian life is that it means being delivered from all adversity, but it actually means being delivered in adversity. I don't want to go into the wilderness. What does the wilderness mean for me? I've got it made at the moment. The wilderness means, does it mean me losing my job? Does it mean people disliking me more? Does it mean, uh, you know, illness, uh, ill health? Or what does it mean? I don't want to go into the wilderness. And and I used to worry that my desire not to go into the wilderness and face tribulation was a middle-class thing. Is it because I'm desperate to self-improve? Is it because I want solutions to every problem? Who doesn't want solutions to every problem? Like, oh, you're not liking your job because it's not very fun. You should leave and get another job because you totally deserve to enjoy your job. Or, you know, oh, your life group's really difficult and there's someone in you don't like it. Move and join love life group who's got time for that we are desperate for solutions and when i can't find solutions like oh it makes my skin crawl i think send me back to slavery i wish i'd never been born but actually it's not just a middle class thing because we see that the israelites time and again they don't want to face it they don't want to face the testing zone of god it is a very human response if you don't want to go into the wilderness it's a very if you're in the wilderness right now and you hate it it's a very human response but it's the wrong one We need to see how changeable circumstances are. See it in the lifespan of the Israelites. They were in a good place, in a bad place, good place, bad place, good place. And that's over generations. We know that. It happens to us. What's to stop? Illness unexpectedly coming on one of us. Infidelity, job loss, that stuff. We we talked about that stuff is is going on in our church already. that, That stuff happens. And what's to stop our circumstances changing? So we need to accept that. And we need to make the choice not to grumble, just like we're called not to be anxious in fact, the Bible goes, calls us to go further than that. In John 16, 33, Jesus, when he's talking about being the bread from heaven, says, in the world, you will have tribulation. If you have ever believed as a Christian, but it means a good thing for your life, if you've ever had that preached to you, I'm sorry, it's not true. I used to try and preach the gospel to people by doing that thing of, there's a God-shaped hole in each of us, and, and when he fills it, you'll just feel so good. And that's kind of true, but also we need to recognize sin, and we need to recognize that life is definitely going to be difficult. And Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. So we are to expect and embrace tribulation, choosing not to grumble and believing that it is for our good, just as it says in Hebrews. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The alternative to being of good cheer is to be glum. And recently, I was struggling with something and I just felt glum and I read this and I just believed it and it just felt such a difference because the only thing worse than going through something bad is going through it bad and complaining about it. The only reason I could be of good cheer in that situation is because God told me to, and I either believe more or I don't. And it's hard. It is hard. I'm not saying it's always easy to do that. But the truth, here is the truth, no matter how it looks to you today, and whether you are facing issues, big or small, God works through all things for the good of those who love him. The wilderness is never easy. It's never easy. But it is for our good, and we trust that God provides during and through it. So this is how we save ourselves from grumbling and the consequent hardening of our hearts. We remember we remember salvation. We remember everything God has done for us and we make the decision to trust in his provision going forward and to accept the means that he uses to grow this in us, trials and obedience. 
One last thing, and we're, we're heading towards the finish line. Massa and Meribah. So in, in 17, we get the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of Sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They, they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink, so they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord, your God, to the test? Now, whereas the first two grumbles, we get them grumbling, this time we get a test of the Lord, and this is a big, serious issue. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, we are told... Do not put the Lord your God to the test, as you did at Massa, which is quoting this exact situation. And where does that verse sound familiar? Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Water break. Mm. Temptation. And also Jesus quoting it back at the devil when he's in the wilderness for his own period of testing as well. This is where hard-heartedness and unfaithfulness leads, where grumbling grows into, into outright sin and rebellion against God. Surely the Israelites should believe by now, but they don't, and they die in the wilderness. And the Bible remembers them time and again as a faithless generation. You see, for this generation of Israelites, the defining thing in their, should, in their life should have been that they were the generation who were taken from Egypt, who walked through a sea that parted for them, who were fed supernaturally and inherited the promised land. But we are told a few chapters from now that they did not inherit the promised land, and the reason is because they were unfaithful. That whole generation died in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there so that they could die off. The thing that defined that generation was its unfaithfulness. And this is what the New Testament calls out to us about, pleading for us to heed. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10 says, again speaking about this instance, do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angel. Guys, let's learn from this. Let's not let rebellion or doubt or grumbling and unfaithfulness be our defining moments so that we die in our respective wildernesses. Because whilst in some ways the story of the Israelites in Exodus is remarkable, supernatural after supernatural, at the same time their story is so identifiable with ours, has so many hallmarks of the rebelliousness of humanity, we are deceiving ourselves if we look at their story and think how pathetic they are whilst not recognising it any of it ourselves. Recently it became apparent to me just how little I put myself in a position to need his provision and I found myself grumbling and anxious. This is our story. Just as God delivered the Israelites from their slavery in Egypt, but through their faithfulness, grumbling and hardened hearts, they failed to find rest in the promised land. So we, who have been saved from our slavery to sin by Jesus Christ, have been offered the ability to rest in him. We've been through most of the, most of the story. The Israelites have grumbled. God has provided them, but told them that he, they need to obey him. They've grumbled again. God has told them again, have my provision, but obey, obey me once more. Then we get the Israelites grumbling again, and this time testing God. What would you do? The obvious answer is to smite them. But what does God do? Exodus 17, verse 5, he says to Moses, go out in front of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Tim Keller describes this as a court case between God and humanity. It's like you get God on one side and humanity on the other side. And it's like the judge's bench is the stone, the rock that is between them. And Moses is almost standing in a position of a judge, but he's acting on the orders of the greater judge in that situation. And God looks at them and he judges them. And in the same way that a judge strikes the, you know, the wooden gavel with his stick, Moses strikes that rock with his staff. And what happens to them? They are given a stay of execution and they are given life-providing water. They are judged eventually as a faithless nation. This is remembered against them. But God is merciful in that situation. And where else do we find a court case between God and humanity in the Bible? 1 Corinthians 10 replays this story for us. It tells us that they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. 
God is judging humanity. We get God on one side, we get us, humanity, rebellious. We weren't in the desert, but we're on our own deserts. And when we're in our own deserts, we find ourselves rebellious against him. We've, we've been rebellious our whole life. It's, it's what humanity is. And the rock that stands between us and the rock that is hit and that should smite us is Christ. And instead of the staff that hits him, we get the cross hitting him. Instead of us being wiped out or given eternal damnation, we are giving life-flowing water and a stay of execution. Jesus is the greatest stream of water that provides for the people. In John, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, streams of living water will flow from within him. Jesus is the greater mediator who stands before God interceding on behalf of us. Jesus is the greater manner. When, when Jesus in John 6 says, I am the bread from heaven, they would have understood this reference. He is the greater manner. I am the bread of life, he says. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Unlike with the Egyptians, we, that, we get that greater bread and we will not die. It specifically says that. It said they ate bread from heaven and yet they still died. We eat bread from heaven, the greater bread, and we get eternal life. And Jesus, who came to earth to live the perfect life that we could never live and died for us on the cross so that we might have eternal life with the Father and a grumble-free life until then, is the greater rock who takes the brunt of the judgment that should be ours. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.